First on film and entertainment, Alex First with you, and I am joined by Peter Krause. It is getting closer to the festive season. The baubles are starting to show in the city. Are you noticing, Peter? I don't always look at the baubles, but uh, maybe the bangles and beads. Well, exactly. No, no, no. I, I'm. Well, it's a question that has. Uh, I mean, th- there are man- many more important things in life, but the question has been raised many a time. When is the right time, if you are of that persuasion, to put up Christmas lights? What do you reckon? Is it the 1st of December? Is there oh. such a thing? Well, it's kind of like when, when hot cross buns appear, right? I mean, they appear <laughs> right after Christmas and people are saying, no, 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 you can't do that. So things have changed over the years. Is there a an appropriate time to, well, not only put them up, but tear them down? I don't think there's any hard and fast rules, but uh, some people like to put up their Christmas uh, festivities uh, very early uh, because they need a little Christmas, I suppose. Well, what about the Hanukkah lights? Yes. Now, again, obviously, they are dictated in a sense by the fact that there are eight candles plus the central one for those people who are not Jewish, which is sort of lighting the other eight. So, you know, you've got the eight days, but you you don't put them up before, right? First night is first night. With Christmas lights, though, yeah. it's quite the thing. Mind you, I, I read uh, the, the sort of Scrooge-like uh, approach to Christmas. If you spread far and wide beyond your home, you can, um, you can incur the ire of uh, local government, and as such, they can tell you to cease and desist in other words you can't spread on to the nature strip that's what i I, i'm not sure that's true in every state in australia but i read an alarming story where somebody basically said well that's it if i'm not allowed my own territory i'm not going to do it anymore and locals are very very peeved by that but i understand from a safety point of view it's about the balance isn't it and some people really revel in the christmas cheer which i must admit it really lifts an able, doesn't it, when you're driving around or walking around and lots of youngsters. I, I, I noticed a lot during Halloween as well, were you around? I mean, you, you've got paper-thin walls, so you can just look through the walls, like, in your home. <laughs> yes, at the traffic and the noise. Exactly. Uh, but, yeah, uh, but it's great to see, yes, a number of houses were are uh, currently lit up. Um, Already. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, we Look, it, it's one of those things, Halloween, that, like Christmas... It's, it, it hasn't been there for thousands of years. Uh, I mean, wasn't it a Coca-Cola invention? Did, 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 is that not the, the basis of Christmas? I read somewhere. No? True? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure about that. I would have thought it goes back to uh, Christ days. <laughs> no, no, no. Apparently not. Anyway, let us talk about, uh, talking about uh, people who are prominent. I, I wonder in terms of historic figures, how many more are prominent in, in a more sizable manner than Napoleon Bonaparte. There, there wouldn't be too many historic figures that I can think of. Uh, can you think of any other sort of, I mean, was he a warmonger, I suppose, is the first question that has to be asked, because the film basically shows a lot of his military uh, endeavours, and it, it says that he fought in 61 battles. That That was astounding to me. Peter, were you aware of that before you saw the movie? No, no. I knew he he loved to uh, uh, celebrate war and to invade other countries and to be uh, personally, um, uh, I suppose, successful all the time. As much well, but as he possible. wasn't successful, of course, all the time. He was in the early days, and then yeah. uh, he was exiled twice. So, the other thing that is incredibly alarming is three million people apparently died under his watch. That is mm. extraordinary, extraordinary and horrible to even contemplate. And Well, war creates death. It does. Well, I mean, you know, we, we talk about war. It's very difficult to go past the Holocaust and the yeah. six million Jews that were killed and so many others, gypsies and, I mean, you know, homosexuals. And it, and, and we, we look at what's going on now in, in Gaza and Israel and October 7 and horrible, horrible you know, the Hamas invasion that uh, killed 1,200 to begin and now the thousands of deaths that have taken place. I mean, it's um, 
I just hope that uh, there is a long-term solution, but I, I fear there isn't, notwithstanding the fact that we've got a, um, a ceasefire and the exchange of hostages as we speak. Uh, it's War is a horrible thing that we should be learning from and not repeating, but it doesn't seem to be that way. Man's inhumanity to man seems to know no bounds. That I, I, I'm not to say that as an expression. I, it, it's just the, the the damage, the long-term damage, the the mental scarring as well the, as the physical wounds. Just uh, it, it's hard to contemplate, Peter, isn't it? It is, and we should also think about some of the other conflicts that are still ongoing, like in Africa, yeah. uh, in Sudan, and, uh, and, and places course, like that. Well, but the uh, Rus the Russian. In, yes, in Ukraine. Well, Ukraine, yep. yeah. Yeah, absolutely right. And uh, uh, there are conflicts all the time. The, the idea that someone has to be victorious, someone has to be a loser, and uh, losers die. Well, but but winners also die. Uh, that That's the thing, that winners lose lots of, of lives as well, right? So, I mean, the, any loss of life in that. So it's a pity that you can't come to some sort of agreement. And often it's about power and control, which is what it was for Napoleon, right? So, you know, that's, yeah. that, that's the fundamental undercurrent to all of this and wanting more and more and more, you know, that's what Hitler wanted, of course, as well. And the other, the other aspect about this is the ugliness that it pervades in countries that are not involved in the war. You look at what Australia is like today, Peter, it's not a nice place. The, you know, protests, you know, as long as they are sort of done in, in a manner that, um, doesn't cause violence, but the hatred is what what I fear, and and it just seems to, and I I was really uncomfortable with the children uh, on was it Wednesday of this week? Yeah. How did you feel about that as somebody who provides guidance and counselling? Yes, absolutely. They're they're obviously being convinced uh, through social media and by other groups. Uh, about going out and uh, demonstrating, and yet they, many of them would have no understanding really of what they're demonstrating about and what the background of all of this is. The war, yeah, I mean, it's very easy for somebody to say, oh, it didn't start on October 7, but there was a, what, what do we call it, a um, an uncomfortable, not peace, but uh, there, there wasn't the situation of people being killed in the numbers that are being killed now. If October 7 hadn't happened, then you could argue that the 1,200 Israeli lives and the, what, 11, 12,000 now on the Palestinian side would not have been lost. So, mm. I mean, it's a very, you know, it's very easy to sort of say, oh, this goes back centuries, etc. I don't in any way question that. But I, what I do question is people who don't say that it was prompted by th this latest war was not yeah. by Hamas. It was. I mean, of course it was. Yes. So, you know, and, and to dismiss that, and the other aspect about all of this, the fake, the fake news that is being imparted, which obviously in any situation, uh, sides are going to put their their perspective. We get that, but the fake news. I mean, Donald Trump started all of this with his presidency, right? And, and yes, because it, I don't believe that that was in the lexicon the way it has been since and now. Anybody can say anything, and social media has a lot to answer for because so much falsehood is is perpetrated in that medium, and people read it and believe it, and because yes. it, looks, it looks so real. I mean, it, it, as recently as uh, Friday, I and this this has been going on for a while, but they artificially created what the royal family the 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 gener the generation that. Uh, will at, at this stage are, are young children what they will look like as adults and for all intents and purposes they were real now anything can be created and recorded and whatever and, and so how do you believe i mean i have no doubt that the the strategic position of hamas from a pr point of view has been effective because they that they, they utilize that to to win hearts and minds and that that's what creates a lot of the mayhem. So, you know, what do you do? How do you redress that? So if somebody shows you the tunnels, if somebody shows you that the hospitals, uh, underneath the hospitals is used as, used as a safe house, you know, or the starting point for uh, military might by Hamas, how do, you, how do you prove that? 
you get journos through there, but then people don't believe the journos. And, yeah. and unfortunately, so many of the United Nations officials who are overseeing this, I mean, they've been killed as well. So mm. it, nobody wins, as we've said right along. And it's deeply distressing for the Jewish community. It's deeply distressing for the world at large and obviously deeply distressing for Hamas and the uh, the Palestinians. But the problem is that Hamas is... I, there's no other way I can see Hamas other than as a terrorist organisation. That, that, that's what they represent. And it, it appears to be that they don't care if there are casualties on their own side. And, and, and yet they then use that as a, um, as a PR tool. So how do, you, how do you counter that, Peter? Is there an answer? <laughs> there is really no answer because um, uh, who is in control? Is the United Nations in control? Can anyone really um, stop things like this from happening or control them? And the answer is not really. I mean, how? How how can it be done without further bloodshed or without all sorts of other uh, implications of um, uh, control of people's lives, which also people automatically object to? Look, I have no problem with finding a solution where there is land for both sides, as long as it's peaceful and as long as it's possible. And that may require some overtures from neighbouring countries so that there is enough land for this to happen. I mean, would that yeah. be a possibility? You know, would that be a possibility? I, I can't see that it couldn't be, but there's got to be goodwill on both sides. Exactly right. And, yes. and, and that's the hardest part to achieve. And yes. all of this, all of this conversation, not just because of what happened on October 7, but because we're talking about Napoleon. And I, I posed the question, was he a warmonger? I think the answer to that is pretty obvious, but was he also a jealous and hasty lover? Because the film presents him so, does it not? Right? I mean, I found yeah. that rather interesting. Obviously, that was a choice. Now, I've got no idea whether there is um, any evidence to support that, because that's one of the questions asked about Napoleon, how accurate is it? Well, any movie is a movie. Uh, it's not a documentary. It doesn't purport to be a documentary. Mm. There are dramatic it's a dramatization, clearly. Now, I don't doubt that it's based on reference books and so on, but the movie shows that Bonaparte was somebody who was very strategic on the battlefield and had lots of victories in the early days. And then his bravado got the better of him and he took on more than he should have. And thereafter, things went downhill quickly. And the consequence, as I referenced earlier on, was that Bonaparte was exiled not once but twice and of course the second time he died where he was exiled six years after that. So the cost to many that took up arms under him was their lives. And as for the love of his life, who was Josephine, her inability to bear an heir proved particularly costly. And while Napoleon eventually chose country over continuity of his marriage to Josephine, that didn't mean his feelings for her diminished she may actually have been quite an unlikely match. And she was because she was a widow with two children and six years older than him, but she still captivated him. And, and basically that continued until her passing. And in the end, of course, like many that fly too close to the sun, Napoleon's demise was inevitable. He was a Corsican. He um, led the French revolution as the uh, French Republic, rather, as the first consul from 1799 to 1804, and then he was Emperor of France from 1804 to 1814, then again briefly in 1815. It's his story. It's the belligerence, it's the bombast, it's the vanity, the vulnerability, through the eyes of the director Ridley Scott. And it's been written by David Scarper, who did all the money in the world. No doubting that Scott makes powerful and impactful films. I was sort of going back through his CV and Mighty impressive. I mean, Thelma and Louise, Gladiator, Blackhawk Down, American Gangster, Prometheus, The Martian. Just, that's just for starters. I thought that this one, Napoleon, rated MA, runs for two hours and 38 minutes, is a spectacle. The war scenes particularly evocative. The costuming, the interiors are lavish. As Bonaparte, Joaquin Phoenix, he comes across as determined, as resolute, caught up as well in his own sense of self-worth 
to others' detriment. Uh, he's depicted here as cruel and needy. Vanessa Kirby plays Josephine, and she displays this unique hold over him, and, and she knows it too. There's a resilience about Vanessa Kirby's characterization. Rupert Everett displays a stiff upper lip as the Duke of Wellington, who has Napoleon's measure in the Battle of Waterloo. It is one of the most powerful sequences in the film. Ultimately, it is the Duke that dispatches Bonaparte to what would be his final destination, which is the island of St. Helena, which is in the Atlantic Ocean, nearly 2,000 k's from the west coast of Africa. And this picture switches from the political upheaval and the plotting to the wars being waged and Bonaparte's personal life. Starts in 1789, he was born in 1769, charts his path until his death in 1821. So he was, what, uh, what that, that makes it about 51, doesn't it? Something like that when he passed away. Um, so uh, there, there still appears to be wholesale jumps. Is that right? So, uh, 1769, yeah, to... Yeah, Yeah, that's 51. There appear to be wholesale jumps in time as the highs and lows of his relationship with Josephine are are plotted. Look, you get a bit of a feel for the man and his motivations, but I didn't find Napoleon the easiest film to follow. While Ridley Scott tried to cram a lot in the two and a half hour plus running time, I thought that the story development was bitsy. And in fact, I'd argue there's enough source material, so much of it, to have readily developed the plot further and turned the offering into a two-parter. Because as it stands, I didn't regard Napoleon as must-see material, Peter. It's not in the same league as Oppenheimer, which I consider a much more complete film. Nevertheless, notwithstanding debates about its historical accuracy, which we referenced earlier, Napoleon the movie is often hard-hitting. So that they were my thoughts about it. Did you think it was the complete film? Uh, look, I, I want to approach this from a, a, a number of different perspectives. First of all, I've had a look at two reputable historic websites that have analysed um, Ridley Scott's film, and they have uh, both uh, agreed that there are a number of inaccuracies in the film, uh, including what, what, that... What other, other than dramatic reasons? Uh, correct. Uh, I mean, for example, uh, Napoleon was never at the Fre- uh, French Revolution guillotining of, um, um, uh, you know, it, 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 it just didn't happen. Also, they never, he never met the Duke of Wellington, even though in the film they do. So that's just a few perspectives. And uh, Ridley Scott uh, has already said that he did take advice from historians uh, but he ignored m- most of them because he wanted to make a dramatically powerful film. And and as you said, and as we all know, this is a, a narrative film, not a documentary. However, uh, people will have this uh, idea that uh, some of the aspects of the film were, were true when in fact they didn't happen. Okay, that's one perspective and, and we have to deal with that. Secondly, um, uh, there is a four-hour version of the film that Ridley Scott will be releasing to Apple uh, TV because it's a, an Apple TV um, production to begin with. Yeah. And uh, he's already said he's releasing a four-hour version, and that may address some of the the plot holes or the or the, the, the plot, the way it develops uh, in this two-and-a-half-hour cut uh, of the film for mm-hmm. cinematic reasons. Well, there you go. There you go, Peter. I mean, that... Four-hour version. If if it was part one and part two, that could have been played in cinemas as well. Uh, possibly, possibly, and uh, and that also goes to an argument about whether there should be intermissions in cinema. And uh, I know that uh, some uh, uh, cinema owners are really looking into this in some detail for any films that are over well, I mean, two and a half hours. Is, yeah, but the difficulty here is that the uh, I mean, this was this was one. Was it on Oppenheimer or was it another film that? Basically, a number of cinemas were called out for their. Some of them in, inserted a, a break, and um, they were called out because the director did not want that to occur. Yes. So, uh, yeah. I mean, where where does this is a really important issue? Where does the control of a director start and end? Right. The moment the movie is out there, can he or 
she or they de determine a oh well it should only be seen in IMAX right because it was shot on IMAX should there be a an interval should there not be an interval I mean is that is that under how is that fair is that I understand that's their preference but preference is different from dictating to somebody that you can't put in an interval that well that's true but don't forget most directors don't have total control of their film it's no, usually no, no, no. under the control of producers and yes. distributors who make decisions about how a film will be released and in what sort of format and it wasn't actually Oppenheimer I I uh, misspoke then the film that I was thinking of was the one that uh, came out uh, the the one about the um oh killers of the flower moon thank you that's the one yeah yeah with the director there, Martin Lassazi, yeah. uh, calling people people out on that. Yes, and, um, yeah, that I understand why, but I'm also somewhat concerned about it because I mean, look, many people can't hold their bladder, and then you what, is it better than miss? I oh, know, I mean, uh, there's no sugar coating that. Uh, no, it's true. It's, it's true, uh, and, and that is that is that fair then that he'd rather people miss out on five minutes of the movie, you know, or would have a break that allows them to see it in comfort. I mean, if you're if you're in your seat feeling discomfort while you're watching a movie, surely that's not a desirable thing either. No, I, look, I agree. And I think what should happen, and it's already happening with some films that are released like Japanese animation, which is released either in a dubbed format or in uh, its original uh, format, that uh, cinemas should be able to screen the film two ways, with and without an intermission, and people can make their own decisions. Yeah, which is great. So it gives people choice, and you can go to a session that is or isn't. Yeah, I think that's a, a wonderful solution. And again, I don't know whether you need to put this into agreements. There's been strikes enough in the United States, but I, I think it should be put in there that they don't, they don't, the producers don't have that control or whatever. I, I mean, at some point. The cinema chains need to make money as well, right? And if people are, and if people are going to be unhappy with the the format and and whinging etc cetera, etc cetera, as some have, that's just not appropriate either. So, all right, let's get back to your thought, thoughts about yes. the as a <laughs> Okay, look, overall, it's it's a well cast film, and the battle sequences, which were largely shot in Malta, are really well handled. And and I mean, the staging of the, the film is very good indeed. Mm -hmm. I had a small objection to Joachim Phoenix's uh, depiction of Napoleon. He came across more as whining rather than as, as someone who was really powerful, wanted control, etc. I also... I think there's both, and that's the thing that really, I, I, I think it depends on the scene that he's in. Yeah. There's certainly an arrogance there and, uh, you know, puffing out his chest, etc. And then there is... It's almost like he's a puppy dog at times and, you know, like he, he rushes back from war when he finds out something about Josephine and things of that nature. And it, it, it sort of, it, it almost belittles him in some respect. Now, perhaps that was him, perhaps that's the dramatisation. But yeah, I, I, I found that rather, uh, yeah, that dichotomy that's presented uh, more than a dichotomy and, and a bit hard to swallow. Yes. Uh, look, I agree. Now, it may be psychologically part of the, uh, his character, but uh, I haven't read enough analysis of the psychology of Napoleon in the 18th century to be able to make that uh, uh, comment. Um, also, Vanessa Kirby, uh, I think her role as Josephine is not very well written and, and she struggles to really come to grips with whether she is uh, someone who is a more powerful sort of influence on Napoleon, or whether she is subservient uh, to him and is just, uh, you know, at his will. Again, I, I think that she basically knew that she used sex as a, a control mechanism, but she also knew when she went too far. And, and I, I wasn't as troubled by that as perhaps you were. However, I was troubled by the fact that the time span, suddenly you see her in one shot, one scene, and then you see her in another, and time has elapsed, but you're not aware that time has elapsed until mm. a scene at the end, sort of, sort of towards the end, where the reference, or sort of in the second half, shall we say, where there was a reference to 15 years had gone by. I was yes. really, you know, hit, you know, <laughs> with, a, with a feather, had it? I mean, 
normally, it, you know what? I thought it was almost a jump cut. So in other words, I, I, I don't know whether they edited a four hour version and then edited it down to two and a half or whether they just did the two and a half hour version and they're going to have extend it. I, I hope they did the two and a half hour version, but it, I, at times I got the feeling they did the four hour version and, oh yeah, we'll cut this, we'll cut this, we'll cut this. That's what it felt like to me. Well, according to Scott, he uh, he filmed it as a four-hour film, but right. uh, he he was asked to cut it back to two and a half hours for cinema release purposes. So, but anyway, we'll we'll, we'll see about that. Right. I also I'm also disappointed that Taha Rahim, who mm-hmm. plays uh, an important French aristocrat, yes, um, uh, has uh, is dismissed very much in the film his role is not regarded as uh, particularly important or interesting even though he's third build uh in the film so yes, i did note that mm. yeah and uh, so, look there are a number of these aspects uh so occasionally well, really, i liked it in terms of in terms of characterization he yeah. was very much napoleon front and center and josephine that that love story between them and the relationship i mean that and it's almost like the other characters wafted in and out at times, some of them, uh, but but none of them commanded a lot of attention. I mean, that was exactly. that, that was obviously a deliberate ploy on the part of the director. Well, maybe, but again, the four-hour version might be fleshing out some of those characters in a bit more detail. So uh, uh, we'll see about that. And I do want to make reference to Abel Ganser's superb and restored 1927 epic of Napoleon, uh, which has been restored on Blu-ray um, by uh, Francis Ford Coppola. It, it's an incre- I've seen it. It's an incredible experience, a five-and-a-half-hour production. Oh, my darling. Did oh you, my God! Yes. Did you sit there? <laughs> did you see it in a cinema, or did you see it online? Oh, online. I obviously right. not in cinema, especially because the last twenty minutes of the film is remarkable because it's shot in triptych. There are three screens that are melded uh, together, or three projectors that go together if it's seen in a cinema, and it's presented that way on. Uh, Sorry, um, there's not three separate yeah. shots. There's one shot, or the three. So they're three separate shots that are sort of presented like a huge cinemascope um, production, uh, the last 20 minutes, which is the, uh, I think, the Battle of uh, Waterloo. It's um, uh, It only goes up to uh, a certain date. But it is remarkable the way it's filmed, uh, progressive filmmaking, um, just before sound came in, and it's just an incredible... So if anyone wants to catch up on, I think, the, the best version of Napoleon, have a look at that on, on Blu-ray. Look, I, I didn't mind um, uh, Ridley Scott's film. Um, I didn't think it needed to be shown at IMAX because it was not shot at IMAX. We, uh, I know both of us saw it um, yeah, at, at IMAX. Yeah, but I mean, again, I love the IMAX. The, the, that sense of, wow, that the battle scenes have... As, as disturbing as they are, you've got the best, biggest screen possible to see it on. That I, I'm a big rap for IMAX, to be honest. Uh, and so am I. Uh, but I always prefer IMAX for films that are shot in IMAX, not that are projected uh, in the IMAX cinema, but really are not. Um, I don't think either way. I definitely want to see IMAX films that have been shot in IMAX, but uh, if, if they could screen every film at IMAX, I would be delighted. I I just think we are so privileged in, in Victoria. We've had this right through. Sydney's just got theirs uh, back up again after many, many years. Yeah. But um, it's quite an experience. Is uh, If people haven't been, it's not cheap, but uh, as a treat, absolutely. And I agree with you in that regard. If you haven't been, probably the, the first film to see it is if in there is one that's been shot on IMAX format. So, yes. yeah. Yeah. All right, so let's get, get, yeah. let's get to the score. Napoleon, okay. MA rated 158 minutes. Peter. Okay, um, in summary, I think uh, it's a film worth seeing but has lots of uh, difficulties attached to it, so I give it 6 out of 10. Well, I struggled as well to find the right mark with regards to a score, but I still thought as a spectacle even though it didn't always hang together, it was worthwhile, and I'm giving it a seven and a half for that reason. But yeah, with a few buts as well. 
Let us move on. Jaya, 88 FM to talking about uh, The Royal Hotel, which is an Australian movie. And did you see the documentary in 2017 called Hotel Gulgadi? I certainly did, and even interviewed the filmmaker responsible for it. Which I thought was a really powerful film. Yes. Uh, okay, so there's two things. Either somebody's just driven through your front wall. <laughs> oh, these demonstrators, I don't uh, know. Um, <laughs> look, it sounds like there's a rally, a motorbike, <laughs> and, and, and feral cats going through the wall. Okay, so... Uh, I, I think Peter lives in a home that has the thinnest walls I've ever experienced, right? I, th- I think Mason, they're, they're not even Masonite sheets, are they? They're little, little pieces of paper that get, get wet and then you get wet. Anyway, the Royal Hotel, MA rated 91 minutes. Men behaving very badly towards women and drinking to excess with consequences. They are the two themes. And the director and co-writer alongside Oscar Redding is Kitty Green first saw the documentary Hotel Gulgadi as an Australian Film Festival jury member. And that was her inspiration. She was taken by the story of two young Scandinavian women, as the doco showed, trapped in an Australian mining town. And while she had seen movies set in Aussie pubs before, many of them in remote communities, never through a female lens. And in the Royal Hotel, 25-year-old Hannah, played by Julia Garner, and Liv, Jessica Henwick, who's 24, are Canadians, right? So they've, they've um, changed nationalities from the documentary. They've chosen the furthest place from home to travel to and enjoy. And they're running short of cash. So they take the only jobs available at short notice, being at a pub in an isolated mining town. And what greets them? Well, it's hardly enticing, Peter. No Wi-Fi. Oh, my golly, how can they survive? You know, they're 20s. Oh, my golly. And limited hot water. Yeah, that is an issue. Okay. Let alone the extremely curt pub owner, whose name is Billy, played by Hugo Weaving, who lays down the ground rules. He's, a, he's, he's quite a piece of work, that man. Anyway, he lives in a caravan out the front of the watering hole with his Indigenous girlfriend, Carol, played by Ursula Jovich. And she helps him out in the kitchen. Now, while one of the two young ladies live embraces their new environment, Hannah is less than impressed. Because the patrons, well, they're a wild and rowdy bunch who come on strong. While Billy, who's the pub owner, frequently falls, dead drunk, and he doesn't pay his bills. The other of the two young ladies, Hannah, who's given a crude nickname, is fearful. She wants out. But Liv convinces her to stay on for a few more weeks. It's a move that backfires badly. So the Royal Hotel shows Australians in a very negative light as misogynistic boozers and reprobates. A really ugly picture. Hard to watch. But that, of course, is the whole point. You can have a great time without stepping over the mark, but apparently not in this remote corner of the country. There is an edginess about the Royal Hotel from the get-go that does not let up, and the film's all the better for it. I really like the contrasting characterizations of the two women. Julia Garner presents Hannah as wary, more guarded, while Jessica Henwick's live appears to be up for anything. We sit back and wait, frustrated that we can't do anything to influence the behavior of the town's inhabitants, which presents as an ever-present threat. thought Hugo Weaving was very powerful, quite pervasive as the rough-and-tumble publican on a slippery slope. And as Carol Ursula Jovich appears resigned to her fate, tough on the outside, she has a strong moral compass. Matty, played by Toby Wallace, is perhaps the most interesting of the men folk in town. The 25-year-old seems like a good guy, but when tanked up, goes too far. And Teeth, James Fresherville, is desperate for some romantic action, but booze again affects him badly. But the most sinister of the townsfolk is Dolly. Daniel Henschel, who's positively sinister, right? Most sinister and positively sinister. Absolutely. Kitty Green has woven a taut psychological thriller, anything but a Tourism Australia ad. It's a warts and all portrait that hardly paints a pretty picture of the outback, save for a star-infested skyline and a few arresting landscapes during the day. Nevertheless, the Royal Hotel stays with you long after you exit the cinema. 
it's a really strong imprint and it's a very strong movie. It is called The Royal Hotel, Peter. Your thoughts? It certainly is. And uh, it, it certainly reveals the ugly side of living in an outback uh, community where there isn't much to do apart from drinking. And uh, certainly uh, the the various men involved, including Hugo Weaving and um, Toby Wallace and so on, Daniel Henschel, all very interesting perspectives on what men do when they're in that sort of environment and especially when they encounter women. So it is a very disturbing film in many respects. It's interesting how the film was shot in uh, South Australia in uh, uh, a place called Yatina, which is about half an hour from Adelaide, and they found this old pub which had been closed, and they were able to restore it for uh, filming purposes, and uh, they've done an excellent job yes. mimicking, to some extent, Wake in Fright, which is probably oh, yeah. the best comparison. Mm -hmm. And so th this notion that uh, there are some evil things happening in the outback of Australia, uh, I mean, Wolf Creek is probably another example, but... Uh, uh, the best example is Wake and Fright, uh, it probably demonstrates that there are darker aspects to Australian character that we don't often want to talk about, and this film certainly does uh, reveal that. Uh, it's so interesting how the two women, the backpackers, who were hoping just to make money and to uh, have a reasonable time, were referred to as fresh meat on yeah. board outside the uh, the pub, oh. and... Um, and that just indicates uh, where this film is heading. Look, it's a very impressive film. Kitty Green mm. uh, worked also with Julia Garner on their previous film, The Assistant, mm -hmm. which was such an impressive film about uh, a woman who works for, a, um, I think it's for a film production company and uh, is mm -hmm. given uh, difficult circumstances um, being somewhat isolated. So uh, Kitty has done a great job in continuing that theme uh, in very much uh, the Royal Hotel. Uh, look, uh, excellent Australian film. I was quite impressed by it, and uh, I, I was getting very worried at one stage about where this was heading. But uh, without any spoilers, I won't spoil it for anyone. It is certainly a disturbing film worth seeing. Eight out of ten from me for the Royal Hotel, MA rated, 91 minutes. Nothing wrong with a 90-minute movie, Peter. It depends on the story. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, what are you giving it? Would you believe I absolutely agree with your score? Eight out of ten. The, you, you were looking over my shoulder when I wrote it. I tell, <laughs> I tell you what. Uh, Trust, I was looking over my paper thin walls. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you are on J eighty eight FM, and folks, if you want to participate in our programming and you want to spend a little bit of money to become a member of J E, please do so. 54 bucks, go to j-air.com.au and that's what community radio is all about. Yeah, community. So folks, uh, get on board, please, if you feel so inclined. Cat person, are you, Peter? I, I, you couldn't keep a cat. A cat would literally break through your walls, correct? Well, exactly right. It would it, it eat the scenery. Uh, have you ever had any, any animal at all in your possession as a pet? No. Not even a sea slug, Peter. <laughs> now, if you see a slug, what do you do with it? Exactly, you do. So, you hang on. At growing up, do you, you you didn't have any pets at home? No, no, not at all. Wow, you, you, don't you feel you've missed out? Because dogs can be very loving, cats can be very purring. <laughs> I've had those. <laughs> I've had, well, I'm I, feeling good about that. Yeah, my um, my first pet. Um, I, I was a crazy mixed up kid. My oh. first pet, well, I grew up with, uh, and, and you would have as well. No, no, sorry. You, you were born in 1733, but no. Correct. Uh, yeah. The, uh, I, I grew up with, uh, Charles, uh, Schultz and, uh, Peanuts. So my, we had a cat and what do you think the cat was named? Crazy uh, kid, right? Charles Schultz? No, it was named Snoopy, <laughs> which is a dog. Oh, yes, I know. So, um, yeah, I mean, it really, it, it scarred me for life. Anyway, um, and I think, the, I think I was the one who named it. So there you go. I, uh, hopefully, uh, well, mind you, I did name my, my, I gave my daughter a unisex name and I'm, I'm not sure that that's a good thing to do be, because uh, I, I told you the story, did I not, about she was at school and she'd been in, in that class for the entire year and 
we received a written report from the teacher. And the teacher said that my daughter, he has done a wonderful job. And I'm thinking, well, that's wonderful. You've been with my daughter for a year and you don't know that she's a girl. That was a bit of a worry. And and that stuck with me all these years. You would have thought that I understand it takes time to write reports, but you, you know the sex of the person you're writing about, don't you? Although for this age, I shouldn't presume that. No, no. Back in the day. Back in the day, right? <laughs> oh, my goodness me. So uh, just referring to your dog, Snoopy, uh, how animated was it? No, uh, Snoopy slept a lot. Ah. But but there's very good chasing um, vermin, right? So that's ah. what cats, cats are good, yeah, right? I mean, uh, if it sees vermin, it, it goes. But I can't say there was a lot of vermin around our neighbourhood, nevertheless. You know, they were the days, though, Peter, where cats could actually go outside and come back in and, uh, you know, all of that. It's a lot different now. You you We had Clydesdale horses. You might remember those. You were about 203 at the time. But, you know, they... they <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness me! What kind of fall am I? Yes, exactly. And and you know we used to race out, and there was the um, the milk bottles. Remember the milk bottles? I yeah. do. Yes, they were. It was great. So if it was six a.m., uh, I used to love the clip clopping sound of the horses, far better than Yahoo's sort of hoot tooting the horns at six in the morning. I, I thought that was that was great. And you know, collecting the milk, and we didn't worry too much about the fact that it was left out in the sun. Most yes, exactly. Most, Curdling as we speak. Yeah, most of us survived, you know, just, but we, we you know, just, right? Yeah. And well, I, I, remember, to... I remember getting a bottle of milk at school every day. Yes, there you go. Oh, sorry, you went to school. Did they have school in, in you know? <laughs> well, Anglia, and Napoleon I, just didn't it, get along. No, well, I mean, hang on, there were, there were, there were rocks, weren't there? I mean, you, you, you didn't actually have a chalkboard, right? What, what, I, I suppose it was the, the brown dirt around you. You used that, you know, did, did you actually have cutlery? No, you wouldn't have got no. <laughs> Look, it's not easy milking rocks. No, it isn't. I like the um I like the fact that you could to pull the bottle top off and there was that pop of the bottle top that was um aluminium. Yes. That was very nice, yeah. And it, it was. And the good old days where health the, wasn't the an old, issue. Well when when what wasn't an issue? Health. Health. Yes, yes, health. yes. Well <laughs> yes and no. I mean, one of the things that I would say is that these days you, there, there needs to be a bit of play in the dirt to build build resi- resilience, does there not? Right, you can't be too clean. Apparently, uh, mm, so yeah. So I mean, it's it's the balance between the two. Uh, this this leads us into Cat Person, which <laughs> is a very long film for what it is, Peter. It's 119 yes. minutes. It's MA rated. This could have been a 90 minute. Do you agree? Well, it's based on a short story to begin with. So the answer to that is yes. Yes. Very good. Okay. You're, you're very pliable today. I like that. Uh, okay. So there's a this is a quirky psychological drama. It, it, it does take its sweet time to ignite. It comes into its own in the third act. You've got Margot, played by Amelia Jones. She's this diligent 20-year-old university student specialising in anthropology. She's got a vivid imagination. And she works part-time in the popcorn and candy bar in an old-style movie theatre. Into this cinema walks tall, dark, awkward stranger Robert, played by Nicholas Braun, who's a 33-year-old, not good at small talk. Margot has an ultra-feminist roommate called Taylor. Uh, Taylor is played by Geraldine Viswanathan. I'll get this wrong. Viswanathan. Right? She cannot understand why the attraction is there for Margot to Robert in the first instance, and she tries to warn her off, as a good friend does. But there remains something about Robert that interests Margot. When he turns up at the movies a second time, Margot seizes her opportunity. Carpe diem, seize the day. She fantasises about what could be. That's notwithstanding the fact that she's left to fill the inevitable silences between them. And a relationship of sorts develops, starting with text messages. But there's still an uncomfortable unnatural feel to it and as things get physical margot struggles to get over her, get over her feelings of ick are you familiar with that term peter uh, uh no okay ick is a modern use of 
the 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 word yeah it it, it just doesn't feel right but it, it's it's quite a, it's an onomatopoeia really ick don't you think it's it, i like the word anyway yeah uh, it is it's one of these it should be, if it's not it should be in the dictionary anyway discomfort right. turns to fear for margot as she doesn't know how to break things off and believes that he is stalking her susanna susanna vogel directs this story adapted by michelle ashford from a 2017 New Yorker short story by Kristen Rupinian. And while I appreciated the eccentric characterizations, I did. The, the pacing of much of the film can best be described as languid. And I would have liked it to move along more readily. Amelia Jones does have an X factor, particularly appealing, actually. She brings emotional intelligence to the role. Among the best scenes in the film are Margot's nightmares and thought bubbles. Geraldine Viswanath fan is a scene stealer with her forthright take no prisoners attitude. Nicholas Braun has arguably the hardest persona to fill because you could hardly call Robert likable. He's often distant. He's a fish out of water. In fact, I was left wondering what qualities Margot actually sees in him that she actually appreciates. And it appears to me that she merely loves the thought of having someone special. Margot and Taylor's musical theatre obsessed buddies add a little bit of fun some may read that to mean cringe value to this offering. Uh, also, don't be fooled by the title, Cat Person. A dog has more screen time than a feline. Now, that is really a dichotomy. Any, anyway, you might explain that to me. But uh, the film has some delightful moments. It does show promise, but it doesn't realise its full potential. And two hours is too indulgent, Peter. Yes? Uh, yes. So. Uh, yeah. Look, what disappointed me greatly about this film is that it was set up from a short story as a warning uh, to women uh, about mm -hmm. online dating and uh, uh, and uh, and especially about male predators. Um, and that, that on... wasn't a problem that it was set up that way. I, I yes. Mean, yeah, it wasn't a problem it was set up that way, but it was the way it was done. Is that correct? Correct. The screenplay, uh, I think, compromises the story badly. Yes. And I, I actually, I think, uh, even though the setup moves reasonably well for me and uh, the relationship between the two people um, starts off in an interesting way, it, it is quite obvious that it's going to develop in a very predictable sort of way. And I just didn't... Um, I, I found the final uh, third of the film... Um, ridiculous. I, I really did feel that it was not right. set up properly for the, for the way the story develops, and it just goes completely out of control. Well, it, look, I suppose finally something happens, but it's not in keeping, as you rightly say, with what happened beforehand. And, I mean, seriously, why would you pursue that relationship? I still struggle with it. Do, do you understand why you would? Is it why I said that they're, they're, they're thought of having someone special? And I, I, yes, I, look, I agree with you about that. She uh, was a, a very downtrodden sort of cinema worker and she just found this guy so appealing because he would keep on ordering popcorn and red vines, which is something we don't have in Australia, I don't think, which is, uh, uh, is that anything like red snakes or red lollies or something? I don't think like that? we need it, Peter. I do not think we need it. <laughs> yes, there we go. Anyway, no, I wasn't going to make any allusions to anything um, ah. anything like that. But anyway, no, the, the point is that she was looking for someone in her life. She felt that this guy was quirky enough and, uh, uh, and interesting enough to uh, have a relationship with. And online, they would have this uh, constant text messaging. And I think the cat person uh, reference comes into their... Um, into their messaging about uh, are you the type of person who wants a cat or wants a dog or all that sort of thing. So uh, I think it's that sort of reference. Oh. Um, look, I, I I really wanted this film to be much better than it was. I yeah. mean, Susanna Fogel does her best with a, a screenplay she's saddled with, which I don't think is uh, particularly useful at all. So for me, it was disappointing. Although I have to say it was great to see Isabella Rossellini uh, in was, the film, it was great, but I kind of thought, mm. now it's a terrible thing to say, but she is such a grand actor, and this is not a, this is not a grand film. Now you, she wouldn't have known that because, I, well, she would have because she could have read the script. But yes. I kind, I, I was, 
I, I want to see her in grand movies. This is, this is my answer, but I understand that you've got to work, right? So, you know, look, she's no. been appearing of late in a number of smaller independent productions. I saw one at the British Film Festival, so it, I think she's looking for different, quirky, and female-led uh, films. Because there aren't roles for older women enough. Yes, exactly, and so. Hope Davis is also in the film in a small but key role. So the casting is interesting, is is pretty good. Uh, it's the screenplay that lets the film down considerably. Yeah, I I kind of I'm I'm wondering because in terms of female roles, older female roles, it the British do it better, but you 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 typically get the the same <laughs> noteworthy female actors in them, but you at least get them. The Americans don't seem to do a lot of that, do they? When you think about it, or they belittle older people in 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 terms of you're pandering to them, and I don't like that either, right? They, yeah. they feel formulaic. Uh, that's a gross generalisation, but I mean, can you think of too many meaty roles for women who are, let's say, sixty five plus? Um, well, I know Meryl Streep is now in her early 60s, so she she would be getting more of those meaty sort of roles, I'm sure. But uh, uh, European cinema uh, yeah. does it much better. Much better, uh, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, again, I know it's a, a generalisation, but that's that, that's that's a it's a real pity, to be honest. But yeah, I I agree with those words. I wanted this to be better, and I when it started, I, I actually thought, oh, this is great. You know, Amelia Jones, I really like as an actor, and mm. I I liked. The, the the portrait of her the, the character her character etc I like that and I thought okay and then this sort of guy walks into a life who just doesn't have a lot going to, going for him and um and I mean it, it seemed like they were pushing you know he suddenly turned and then then you meant to question whether he turned or you know whether it was really him or not I mean, yeah. Let's get a score. Cat person, MA rated 119 minutes, Peter. What do you what do you reckon? Okay, as a psychological thriller, I don't think it's particularly effective. It is quite predictable, unfortunately. Uh, should have been a more nuanced film. I can only give it five out of ten. Yeah, look, I think it was better than that. I but I I don't think it's um yeah it's disappointing. So I'll give it six and a half. I will give it six and a half. I I like quirky, but um yeah, I wanted to hang together more than it did. Peter, thank you very much, mate. We will do it all again very, very soon. And uh, be good to one another. And we'll catch up next week on First on Film and Entertainment.